welcome to Lazarus Theatre Company's new podcast, Spotlight On, where we turn the spotlight on to reveal the people behind the scenes, those who make Lazarus work, the creatives, the artists, the process, the creation. Hello, I'm Ricky Dukes, Artistic Director of Lazarus Theatre Company. And I'm Gavin Harrington-Odedra, Producer of Lazarus Theatre Company. Hello, Gavin. How's your week been? It's been good, thank you, Ricky. How's yours? Um, yeah, all right, I think. It's been fine. It's a bit of a weird one this week, though, isn't it? Because um, it's coming up to the year anniversary of the message to not go to the theatre, yeah. which wasn't quite the closing of going to the theatres. It wasn't the closing that we kind of hoped for. It was the, oh, well, we didn't hope for, but we needed the message, didn't we, the instruction, mm. but um, advised not to. So it's a bit of a strange time, actually, because I think there's also the year of exhaustion maybe the year of oh god it's been going on for a year now but mm. it just feels a bit strange this week going into um should have been our final week of um Hedda Gabler rehearsals into our second show of the season last year so it's yeah. a bit weird it's a bit weird and I don't quite know um what to do about it because I'm not sure there is anything you can do about it to be honest no um, it's all a bit strange but well, um I um I watched a piece of theatre or uh over the weekend um, and it's been a while since I uh, since I saw a piece of theatre uh, online. I think the last thing I saw was the Kings of War from the um, International Theatre of Amsterdam. So it, it was nice to see something new, to see something because it was new. It wasn't something I'd seen before. Um, so that was nice. It was nice to mm. I keep saying nice. Stop saying nice. Um, nice. Nice. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I enjoyed being able to watch something. Um, but yeah, it's it's not the same as it is being in 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 the space with the no. performance. Mm. And of course, it's I think it's that of course there was a few bits and bobs, wasn't there, between lockdown one and two show wise, um, and that all felt strange and odd and weird and you know. But but you know what, I th that might not offer an answer. But I think sometimes you just have to acknowledge it's happened because mm. then you by acknowledging it, then maybe that is part of the dealing with it. So whereas ignoring it and pretending it didn't happen, maybe that's not very useful. Um, so yeah, very very strange. But um, spring is in the air. Yes. Uh, I watched the Country File Lambing special last night. Uh, that was wonderful. Seeing all the little lambs coming out of their mums, um, and um, it was all very wonderful. Spring is definitely in the air, and I have got a bit more of a spring in my step. Actually, it does make a difference, doesn't it, when it's sunny and the daffodils are out? And you know, I don't worry. I'm not turning into a Disney princess. I'm going to start singing <laughs> the bluebirds. But um, yeah, it does make a difference. So it's a strange week. But like you say, it's about new beginnings and starts, you know, like you said, about a new piece of theatre. It's um, mm. uh, maybe it's it's the new ones. How's your studio? It's going well. Yeah, it's 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 serving me well. Thank you. Um, Today's guest commented on how professional it looked uh, prior he, to recording. He was very surprised that I wasn't in a studio. So yeah. I'm pretty proud of that. Um, yeah. Yeah, he doesn't have my view, um, but that's probably a good thing. <laughs> Brilliant. So talking about this week's guest, we'll move on from the studio viewers, maybe listeners, maybe what we need to do is take a picture and yeah. uh, we could we could post that along with the the, the post. <laughs> uh, just so that everyone can see Gavin's studio and my big whiteboard. We might talk about my big whiteboard another time, but we're moving on. Um, so this week we're talking to lighting designer and a very long time collaborator of ours, uh, Mr. Stuart Glover, everybody. Uh, Stuart is a freelance lighting designer based in London. He's working across the UK and further abroad. Stuart's work ranges across all forms of lighting design through theatre, dance, immersive productions, film and artistic light installations. Yes. Uh, Stuart began his Lazarus collaboration with 
our production of Shakespeare's The Merchant of Venice, which played at the Jack Studio Theatre in 2013, everyone. It feels an age ago. Uh, continuing on the Shakespeare theme, Stuart then lit Richard III, which of course was directed by your good self, Gavin, at the Blue Elephant Theatre. Uh, and then uh, we did an Our World at War rep, which was essentially Trawlis and Cressida and Coriolanus playing a rep with each other at the Tristan Bates Theatre. Those productions, of course, were in 2014. Stuart was on a roll and returned in 2015 for Revenge's Tragedy, again directed by Gavin and again playing at the Jack Studio. Uh, that seems to be our home from home, doesn't it? Mm. That, uh, this collaboration. And then he also lit Henry V, uh, which was directed by myself at the Union Theatre. In 2016, Stuart was back, this time for something quite a bit different, actually, to what had gone before, at Breck's Caucasian Chalk Circle, which played at the Jack Studio Theatre. Uh, that same year, we also did The Back Eye at the Blue Elephant Theatre and The Beggar's Opera, also back at the Jack. In 2017, Stuart relit Chalk Circle for its transfer to the Greenwich Theatre and returned to the Jack for the fifth time. I was keeping count by this point. I thought, blimey, what's the tally? Uh, for the fifth time for The Taming of the Shrew, which was directed by uh, Sarah Remus uh, in the uh, year 2017, that was. In 2018, um, Stuart joined us as we moved into the Greenwich Theatre for our first year as resident company for A Midsummer Night's Dream. And in 2019, lit uh, our production of The Tempest. In 2020, Stuart was in rehearsal for our production of Hedda Gabler uh, when the pandemic arrived and people were advised not to attend the theatres and that was prior to the national lockdown. Um, blimey, that's a lot of collaboration going on there. And I was trying to do a score and it's, it depends on how much you count the real light. Is it 13.5 if you count the real light as a 0.5? I don't know whether we would. It's 14 if you count Hedda, but that didn't actually happen. So maybe it's 15 productions if you count transfers or relights shows that didn't happen. You must be exhausted, Stuart. Hello and welcome. I am. Always <laughs> like, this is your life, isn't it? All of that. <laughs> it felt there's quite a lot going on there. Um, wonderful. So first of all, Stuart, um, how are you? How have you been keeping inspired? Uh, how have you been creative? What, what have, what's happened since um, probably haven't seen you? Well, we certainly haven't seen you for at least a year now. Um, the last person. time I would have seen you was in the rehearsal room for Hedda, right? Just before we got told no more. To go home. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think the same as a lot of people, it's been quite a tough year, really. Uh, I've been fortunate enough that I managed to get a job uh, working in Tesco's, which has kept me busy. So at least I've been able to get out of the house, which I know has been, a, you know, not very nice for some people. Uh, but I think creatively it's been quite a challenge really to keep yourself motivated in a way. And also being a lighting designer is quite tricky to engage those muscles sat at home. So it's been quite tough. I've tried to do what I can. I've been doing bits of training online. I've been watching other shows, but in terms of the actual processes, you can't really replicate it outside of doing a show, to be honest. So it's been you know, a bit tough, really. Yeah, it's not like you, you know, I suppose the only thing you could do is perhaps go in your kitchen and just turn the lights on and off, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. And then That's blow the fuse. That's <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to my Friday nights. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I suppose that's then how do you practice something that's actually very practical? You know, you 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 need to be in the space and, and uh, seeing it, I suppose, seeing bodies in the space as well and how that whole thing works um, yeah I think especially in terms of theatre it's kind of 
almost impossible to replicate outside of that. I mean, you can, I've been doing stuff to music, for example, just to see, just to keep my brain going, but you're never going to replicate the same idea of trying to create something on stage whilst you're just messing about on a laptop, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, even with um, models, I imagine that's quite difficult because even if you had a theatre model, you know, putting torches and things in it, um, again, <laughs> again, welcome to my Friday nights. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes I do. I mean, it sounds mad, doesn't it? And, and it probably is a bit mad. But I have done that with a set model is put some torches in there somewhere to see what happens with shadows and beams and stuff like that. Uh, it just gets a bit crazy when you start putting incense in to see what it looks like with a bit of haze. <laughs> that really is when you've, you know you've probably got too much time on your hands. Burning sage around your model box. <laughs> yeah, which is very dangerous. I wouldn't do that. <laughs> Foam board tends to go up quite quickly. Um, before we came uh, on recording on air earlier, um, we were just, just sort of checking in, weren't we? And we talked about um, lighting design generally, really, because the whole idea of this podcast is to try and turn the spotlight onto the people and the process that audiences don't normally get to see. Um, you know, we might do a Q&A or something, but you never really get into the detail of that. Um, but yeah, I, I sort of posed the question earlier, or, or we certainly had a little idea of, is what does make great lighting design? What is great lighting design for you as a, as a lighting designer? Uh, so I think there's an intrinsic uh, feeling that great lighting design normally goes unnoticed as in it's kind of a background piece uh and you only really notice it when it's not done very well is kind of what's assumed uh but i've well certainly as my career has developed i've just felt that maybe that's not entirely true lighting design's probably just as integral a part of the process as anything else apart from maybe actors they are quite important <laughs> uh and especially, I think, as a company, looking back at the work we've done and how the importance of lighting design has changed through that period is quite interesting. So when we look back to some of the early work we did, uh, so Merchant, for example, it's very film noir. It was very uh, subtle in many ways. It was only, I think I've used maybe two cuts of gel the whole time. Uh, and obviously inside of that, there were moments that were a bit more stark or a bit less conventional. But as we've gone through, I would say from chalk circle onwards, certainly it's become a much more integral part of the general scenography of your shows. Yeah, I would say so. There's something about, um, I guess, I guess in some ways, you know, when you think about it, it depends on where it comes in. And actually, if lighting something you're thinking about when you're editing and adapting a script, that's pretty much early stages. You know, that's way before you've cast the thing. So that, you know, that does come quite early on for me, thinking, okay, well, how do, you know, if you're doing an, an adaptation and or you're editing a big Shakespeare and you think, well, if I get rid of that scene how do I still get the information across well I could do that with tableau or physical theater maybe some movement or something what does how can the lighting how can the scenography how can the sound um the stage imagery how could that help and tell us so so actually it's um it's been really useful thinking about this because you go yeah there's this lighting absolutely is a fundamental part of that storytelling which is interesting isn't it because a lot of the classical work we do was originally performed in a shared lighting so isn't part of their remit. But of course, the Elizabethans, uh, particularly Shakespeare and his chums, tell us a lot about light and dark 
when is it nighttime? When is it daytime? Um, it almost seems to me some plays are obsessed with the light and dark, you know, finding out. Uh, so it's all, it's all there. It's all clues in there. But yeah, I think uh, actually with our work, lighting has become pretty fundamental. How does this thing work? And, and maybe, I don't know, we might touch on this as we go along. Maybe that's when, because um, one thing I'm always intrigued about and people ask me quite a lot about is how do you... How do you create that lighting? How do you start? How does that begin? Do you just quite literally put a lamp up? And and and, and when and I think about uh, when it's been successful and what does successful mean? But I think when we've when we've really looked at a show and go, yes, that's achieved what we set out to achieve, or or even more. Why has that worked as opposed to a show where we might go, oh, actually, I still don't quite know what this thing is. And, you know, we had a conversation on the phone didn't we, the other week where sometimes if the director, me, <laughs> hasn't quite worked out a fair whack of it already or, you know, not quite sure it is. Um, I think the word that was used was torturous, but sometimes, <laughs> sometimes the process could be torture. Because we're sort of shooting fish in a barrel, I think is the phrase, isn't it? Something about a fish in a barrel, you know what I mean? Um, but anyway, we'll 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 tap into that. So yeah, we, you've kicked us off really. We're into trip down memory lane land. So it did start with uh, Merchant of Venice um, back in 2013, and so you've talked a bit about the film noir stuff. What else do you remember? Because that was the first time working with us. I, I certainly remember that. Don't know whether you do that meeting at the Nash. You know, which sounds very uh, do, exciting, yeah. but actually we were just in the bar with a coffee chatting, weren't we? But yeah, what do you remember about all that time ago? <laughs> a pond pump exploding? Oh, <laughs> yes, yes, that, that happened, yes. <laughs> uh, I remember, yeah, from the meeting at the Nash, it's really interesting actually, I think, that whole process was really fascinating to getting to know you and how you work. Uh, Merchant of Venice, I just remember, all I remember is just us sending each other images relentlessly of what we thought this thing was going to look like. Uh, and the Jack, I think it might have been the first time I'd worked at the Jack as well. I think just learning how you worked was really interesting. It's a, it, I think that's part also when you look back at a show that might have feel a bit less successful, whatever that success thing is actually, is I think that's when it reminds me of, you do have to go through that process because actually some of the shows you think, oh yeah, we know how each other works. Yeah, yeah, we know, yeah, 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 we know. And you then get to tech and go, oh, actually we haven't had a conversation about this, have we? <laughs> and sometimes that could be joyous and you go, actually we've done that by osmosis. But the truth is you haven't, you've done it through conversation and sharing. And, and actually what um, I've certainly noticed as a director over the time is when those shows are less successful, it's because I haven't shared. And very often that's because I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And then if I don't know, how else is anyone else going to have a clue? But um, yeah, I certainly remember that, just sharing lots of images. Um, and I think in those days, we were just emailing them, weren't we? Just emailing them back and forth, our in-tray full of hundreds of pictures of film shots or art installations or street lamps, I remember sort of yeah. street lamps sort of lighting down an alleyway or something with lots of haze and lots of, because that's always part of the gig, a bit of lots haze. Lots of men with umbrellas, lots of, you know, silhouette, a lot of your classic film noir, really. There was just a lot of that, a lot of black yeah. and white imagery, which I think came across actually in the final product, you could see. Yeah, the steam, just, just think yeah. about steam. So that, you know, you were one of the first lighting designers that I think you could have a conversation about smoke design and haze design 
rather than people just going, oh, just whack it in the corner and turn it on 30%. <laughs> um, actually, where what's the quality? Where does it come from? Is it steam? Is it smoke? Is it burning smoke? Is it haze? Is it morning haze? Is it, you know, so actually sort of think about the quality of all of that. And, um, and of course, there's only so much you can do with a hazer and, and you know, just turn it on, mate, and see what happens. And then, then we go for it. Put a but, fan behind it, see what yeah, happens. <laughs> yeah. But, but of course, that's then part of that experiment, isn't it? Like working that out for each show, each venue you go into. Um, and of course, yes, we had the famous pond pump uh, explosion, which um, listeners can tune into the podcast with Saoirse um, about that, which we cover the, <laughs> the Titanic production. Um, and then next, we, we, we did Richard III, didn't we, over at the Blue Elephant Theatre in 2014. What do you remember about Richard? How was that? Richard, I remember first time in the Blue Elephant with you guys, uh, which is just a completely different space to the Jack, right? It's a completely different way of lighting, I guess. The Jack is a beautiful little space, but it feels slightly cramped as a designer in terms of you haven't got much room to throw light around. Whereas the Blue Elephant certainly feels you can create bigger shapes with your lights. I remember quite clearly, I think there's a production shot of it, of just Richard in the spotlight surrounded by people in silhouette and just you wouldn't be able well you it would be much harder to achieve something like that in the jack so it was really interesting being able to work in a completely different way and we tried to take over the whole space right we tried to change the color of the lights up to the bar and everything like that it's really interesting yeah, yeah. there was there's uh that was the bit where we started to get i suppose a bit kind of um how can we make this whole experience part of the show so as the audience uh, entered the theatre, the performance had already kind of begun, really, hadn't it? I suppose that's the point, that actually as they collect their tickets, the show's already begun. And we did that sort of um, inside-out thing, didn't we? So I think that was one of the first shows we did where props tables were in gangways, the audience walked past, and that sort of stuff. So so the audience experience, you know, uh, it's probably us getting very Brechtian without being knowing we were doing very Brechtian stuff. But, you know, that kind of idea of seeing um, corridors that you wouldn't normally see or or the devices of how to tell a story. Um, and what was that? Uh, Gavin, tell us that the the initial idea about um, taking over the whole building for the show. Well, it, it really is about it was about the experience. It was about you've just walked you've just walked all the way from the station to the Blue Elephant Theatre. And for the next two hours, you're going to be part of, you are in, immersed in this world. So people collected their tickets from the box office. They went upstairs to the bar because the bar is above the theatre. Um, and Stu had, had rigged all these LEDs in the theatre. So it looked completely different. If you've been to the Blue Elephant before, it didn't, the bar did not look like it had ever before. And we had a timed um, playlist, music playlist, which built. So we had all this electronic music that started quite soft and, and slow at the beginning. But by the end of that hour uh, in the bar before the show, um, you, you the tension was already there. And then you go down and you see all of the tools because uh, all of the the deaths in, in the production were, were power tools and things you would find in a shed, um, like... like um, Richard III and all of his lackeys were just using whatever they could find to, to get to get the job done. Um, so you see all that on the table as you go through after an hour of this tense music upstairs. And then you sit down and we had audience members on stage as well. 
So this is the this is the first time I think the Blue Elephant had had audience members on stage. So you were completely immersed in it, and then someone brings out a power tool to kill <laughs> kill someone. Like it could happen. Like you were you were sat next to the throne. So at any moment, someone's sitting in that throne or someone's being dethroned. So it was all about kind of creating that tension, I think. And I think Stu was able to incorporate that from the moment the people stepped into that bar. Yeah. It was definitely a rusty saw somewhere, wasn't there? Yes, I always remember was. walking past a rusty saw. I thought, oh, <laughs> I remember one audience member spotting this rusty saw on a props table, turning to her friend saying, it's not going to end well. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, well, that's fantastic. That's the best way of summing up Richard Third. I like it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and having and trying to have that. It's always tricky, isn't it, with that when you're in effectively, it might be a co-production, but you are in somebody else's house. So when you start doing all that front of house stuff, putting lights in and music, and I remember some of the staff said, oh, it's too loud. And there was, a, you know, bits and bobs going back and forth. But of course, the team were really, really supportive. And we had to just find the middle ground of that. But it, it is a bit, it, I don't know. I don't know whether other theatre makers experience this, but it's quite tricky because you can pretty much do what you want on the stage. But as soon as you start veering into other areas of the building, people start to get a bit funny about it. And um you know, who day, who knows one day we might have our own building where we can do what we like to all of the rooms and, you know, <laughs> rusty sores are plenty. <laughs> Maybe, I don't know. Yeah. And um, it's interesting, Stu, that people think black box theatres. Well, I mean, not everybody, but certainly people have said to me, well, it's just a black box, isn't it? It's just the same room. It's just a black box. But actually, when you look back over all the black boxes we've been in, they're not the same at all, are they? <laughs> No, I mean, they're completely different spaces, aren't they? I mean, the Greenwich in itself is just like an enormous black box, right? See, the way we use it anyway, it feels that way. But yeah, they all have their own unique challenges and their own things that make them, you know, exciting as well. I mean, the Blue Elephant's just a lovely big stage for the kind of work you do. Yeah, it was a brilliant. Something I really learned quite early on at the Blue Elephant was... And I always take this now. I love theatres that the stage is too big for the auditorium. And it feels to me like that's the right way round, rather than a huge auditorium with this tiny little performance space. I sort of feel there's something wonderfully intimate because you're quite close to the action, but at the Blue Elephant, but there's something quite epic about the width of it because it's wider um, than the seating bank. You feel all of a sudden you're in the, you know, the plains of, of Troy or you're in the battlefields of England or, I mean, of course, you're not literally there. It's a theatre play, isn't it? But, you know, there's a, there's a suspension of disbelief because the size of it. And that's, that's quite important, isn't it? Scale is uh, interesting. Talking to black boxes. So then we went to the Tristan Bates, which really is, I find, I've always struggled with the Tristan Bates. I'm going to put that out there, listeners. I've always struggled because it's not just a black box. It feels like a I, I think I finally, <laughs> it took me a while. I think we got a bit of it on Coralanus. And then it wasn't really until Edward II, a few years, well, quite a few years later, that I went, it's a concrete bunker. That's what it is. You see the breeze block, you see all the piping from uh, other uses and all of that sort of thing. And it's, it actually feels very bunkerish, even though it's on the ground floor. But, but yes, we did um, together in 2014, we did Troilus Cressida and Coralanus in rep. OMG, why didn't someone tell me that's not a good idea? <laughs> what, what do you remember of that time, Stu? I think it's interesting you talk about the Tristan Bates in terms of, because, yeah, it does feel like a bunker. It definitely has that feel for it. But it's also a very strange-shaped room. Talking about uh, 
how the Blue Elephant gives you that width to play with and the sense of depth. Because half of the stage, well, not half, but a bit of the stage is around a corner, isn't it, in the Tristan Bates? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's got, again, it presents its own challenges, which is exciting. What I remember of Troilus and Cressida was for a long time, a lot of talk about one of my favorite things, which is angle poise lamps, which eventually disappeared to replace by birthday party <laughs> cake and balloons and things like that. Coralanus, I think, stand out to me was the square. And I think that the real delineation with tape around the floor of this is the playing space and people outside the playing space watching in as observers, other actors, I mean, mm. was again, just slowly nudging yourself into Brecht without really thinking about it, weren't you, at the time? Yeah, I think so. I think you just those very simple metatheatrical devices, it's essentially a box. Uh, when you're in the scene, you're in it. When you're not in a scene, you're not. Is actually such a simple playing game that we used to do in rehearsals all the time. But I think Coriolanus was one of the first. I mean, we've done sort of this before with painted floors and things, haven't we? But I think the LX tape thing was a relatively new thing in that actually instead of painting it uh, and making it look like something, why don't we just literally use what it, we have in the rehearsal room? And it's it's literally a white LX table, uh, LX tape square. Um, yeah. And, and, and angle poise lamps hopefully one day will come in. But there's been several, <laughs> sh several shows we've talked about angle poise lamps that they've never happened. Although we'll get to this in a moment, but there is a project, you know, further down the line uh, in, in the future that could entirely be angle poise lamps. That might so be the starting exciting. point. <laughs> I just think cabling. That's all I keep thinking, <laughs> cabling. Uh, but anyway, we can we could get to that bit. Yeah. And of course, so we had Troilus and Cressida, which was this first half. And I think in my head, I'd made it make sense in that it was the age of innocence, then an interval and the age of experience. So you have the Trojans in this sort of silly birthday party where the table collapsed at the end. As, as the Greeks sort of penetrated the bunker that the Trojans were living this blissful children's party with punch and party rings. I certainly remember the party rings. Lots of food. The mice were very happy with that show. <laughs> and um, uh, I think the, the boom in the mouse population in Covent Garden had nothing to do with <laughs> copious amounts of food everywhere. And then um, in, the, in the, you know, I think it was a nine o'clock slot. It's quite late to start a Shakespeare tragedy. Blimey, what were we thinking? But it was, was Coriolanus and it's quite brutal. And I think that's where we started to understand that space. And someone said to me, oh, one thing I like about your work is it's quite sight responsive. And I just nodded and smiled and moved on. But actually it's a couple of days later you go, yeah, it is actually, isn't it? Doesn't all work have to be sight responsive? in that you are in this building. What does this building then say? And how does the play respond to the space? Which sounds a bit daft, but it took a while to sort of maybe clock into that consciously. I think it's because uh, once you're in that space, because we don't hide anything mm. with big pieces of set or anything, then inevitably we're either going to see the space or we're deliberately going to try and hide the space to make it feel bigger, which is something that we often try and do. But if there's nothing hiding the space, then you're going to have to react to it in some way. Yes. And actually, I've seen work at the Tristan Bates where they have sort of rebuilt the interior and you go, OK, maybe this is a bit more flexible. But but yes, when you're working in a space that uh, or in a way that strips all of that back, you've got to respond to where the doors are or the textures of the wall and the bonk, the concrete in that case. Um, yeah. How um, I, I don't think we ever talked about this, but what's the pros, cons of lighting a rep where 
the rig is the same. Uh, so I think this is such an interesting thing that I learned working on this rep with you, was that the two shows were inherently completely different as well. You already touched on it, but the innocence and naivety of Troilus and Cressida with the birthday party and all of that. And then Coriolanus was, it was brutal. There was very, it was very stark, uh, very violent as well. And I think trying to uh, put both those shows on with the same rig, I mean, I, it just has to be very flexible. And we had no turnaround time either, obviously. So we couldn't change things between the shows. So it was one rig for, for both. Uh, it's just planning really. Same as everything, it's just logistics, just trying to make sure you're ahead of the game. I think it was quite remarkable, actually. If, if any listeners want to check this out, you can go on our archive page on the website to see the production shots. You, you know, you certainly people who would come to see both because, of course, they were separately ticketed, so people could come to one or the other or both on the same night. Uh, and it would be really interesting people who would see the, the two on the same night go, actually, it's still an empty room, but there was actually a massive change. The huge party table had gone in effectively 15, 20 minute, minutes. And this whole other world had been created. And essentially, and I suppose this goes back to the conversation we having at the start about the, how, you know, what makes great lighting design, is we actually, you can change the atmosphere. You can entirely change the tone of a room. 20 minutes with a bit of light and a bit of haze. You know, it, it sounds daft, you know. I certainly remember, I don't know whether you remember this, Gavin, that uh, we went to a do once at a theatre that will remain um, nameless and a certain director of a certain company that will remain nameless, who, when I was introduced to, they, they very flippantly went, oh, it's all smoke and mirrors with you and sort of walked away. And I sort of, and that's always stuck in my mind. Maybe I should let it go after all this time. <laughs> but then um, you go, actually, you've com you completely actually misunderstand what it is. It isn't all about smoke and mirrors, but literally there is something you can do with shapes. There's something you can do with light that entirely tells the audience what the, it might not tell them location or logistics or time period, but it might tell them tone maybe, or style. It it's so informative, isn't it? Lighting is really, really powerful. Such a powerful tool to use in the theater. Mm. Yeah, I think especially, I mean, if you look back at those, I haven't looked at the production shots for a while, but my overriding memory of them is there's an image of Cressida in a party hat with huge pink backlight looking so, it just looks gorgeous. And then the one that I think of when I think of Coriolanus is them having a fight in the middle of a square and it's just those two people and it feels the feeling between those two images is completely different. And like you say, they're just 20 minutes apart, really. And what a cracking company to be able to do those two. I mean, God, that's mad. They must never have been exhausted. Do that now. I mean, never. I'm sure you were exhausted as well, but they must have been knackered. Yeah, they're two, two quite different, but quite bulky plays. Um, you know, quite a lot to get your head around because the one company of, I think it was about 16, 17 actors were in both both pieces with varying differences in size of role, but are still present, still on stage altogether all the time. You know, it's still part of that thing. Um, yeah, we were mad. We were young and unafraid. <laughs> What's the lyric from Lame is? I don't know, but um, <laughs> crazy.
great. Yeah. So in 2015, uh, we're moving on. We're moving on through our, our, our journey. Uh, we were back for, had you back for Avengers Tragedy, which again, we were back at the Jack, a home from home by this point, surely. And um, also Henry V at the Union Theatre, which was a, a brand new space for us. Um, we'd never been to the Union before. Um, what do you remember about that season, those two pieces? Revenge's Tragedy, I remember a huge gold disc on the floor that took a long time to paint and then was scuffed up almost immediately. Yep, I remember <laughs> repainting it. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was, I mean, it was nice to be back at the Jack, I think, especially having the last shows that we'd worked on being at the Tristan Bates, which, like I said, was in rep. It's a bit of a challenge. It was nice to just go back to, you know, one show at a time. Uh, <laughs> And then the union, I remember just being just really exciting. It was like, a because it feels much, much bigger, right? And the way we set out the audience as well was just felt like a completely different space. Everything I'd seen at the union before, I'd never seen it used that way. So that was really exciting. Yeah, because it was this was the old union building, wasn't it? When it yeah. was over the road and it had a real wonderful... Um, there's something about that space that you could see the layers of paint on the walls. I mean, some of those walls probably are a meter less thick, um, but you could see the paint and you just knew stories had happened here. And we turned it round, didn't we? So we sort of put it on three sides, but lengthways, um, which, as you say, not really seen the union like that potentially. And of course, it was an all female production, which really threw up loads of pros and also loads of challenges. You know, what, what was that? And um, it, it's funny because Colette, who played uh, Cressida actually as we talked about earlier but also played Henry V she and I talk, had talked since the production about it and ultimately I kind of think I'm glad we did it very proud of it but there was something ultimately flawed about it actually because the play doesn't quite work in the voices of women uh, because it becomes I don't know it almost became reflective um, rather than boys and their toys and big bombs going off and men just running around screaming and you sort of realize the play ultimately when it's successful in performance, when I've seen it successfully, has actually been, just been a lot of running around and shouting, which um, which actually that company of women were far more, I don't know whether reflective is the right word, but um, it was more about considering the consequences. So it was an interesting experiment, I think, and, and something we hadn't done before. But yes, it felt very exciting because it's because we hadn't done that in the, and certainly hadn't been to the union um, before. We'd done all female projects before, but not quite as... I don't know, it felt very de definitive uh, and, and maybe that's why it was quite um, quite an odd one. It was it's a show that really divided people. I, I know people coming out loving it and other people going, what have you done to this play? <laughs> lots of fluorescent lighting tubes, I remember. Yeah, and lots of lighting from under the seating bank as well, lighting through steel deck, which apparently is one of my go-tos with <laughs> Lazarus. Uh, yeah, a lot of floodlights, a lot of Again, just very simple things, but there was a real starkness I felt to that show. Whereas before maybe coming out of Troilus and Cressida, like especially Troilus and Cressida, there was, there was a lot of colour in that. Uh, and Coriolanus felt like a very, from my recollection of it, a very blue show. There was something, there was a lot of electric in that show as well at the end. Is that right? Yeah, and, and actually in a very sort of, when you look at the production shots of Troilus and Greston and Coriolanus, the, the very simple sw switch is it's gone from very bright pinks 
to sort of extreme blues and actually sort of go, that's in its basic form. But of course, there's a lot more going on there. But when you look at the shots, that really changes the tone and the mood. But I think Henry, I mean, Coriolanus, they still had a look of, I don't know, potential opulence about it. Uh, whereas Henry were, was stark, wasn't it? It's whole scenes yeah. just under fluorescent tubes. And I know we changed quite a lot of that during the process and we ended up gelling some of the fluorescence up, didn't we? Because actually it became maybe a bit too exposing, maybe a bit too stark. Yeah, I think with, especially with fluorescence, I'm sure you've had them when you've used them on other shows as well. They just reveal everything. And when you're trying to hide things or especially... Uh, to make people appear and disappear, it's very difficult to do with fluorescence because they just open up everything, including the audience. I remember that being one of the main issues we were having was trying to keep the light off the audience because while you want them to be participants, I don't think it's helpful to have them fully lit and looking at each other and paying attention to that rather than what's going on on stage. So I remember them being quite a challenge at that time, mm. but it's all learning, right? Mm. Yeah, and actually it's interesting that, you know, it felt maybe a bit, I don't know, maybe the difficulty was that we do want shared lighting. We do want the audience to see everything. We do want to expose everything, but you almost want to do that on a terms they're happy with. Whereas a fluorescent tube a meter above your head makes no one look good. <laughs> so, so actually they weren't, it, it, so actually I, I don't know whether this is true or not. Maybe we need to get a, a, an audience member on to say, but it felt to me that it made them very self-conscious in a, in, the, in a bad way rather than a kind of, I'm comfortable with being seen. And isn't that, that's then interesting because it, that's the type of lamp. So yeah. actually very much for our work, I think we became very then conscious with all the shows, maybe before then, but certainly, cer certainly since then, really conscious about the appliance. So it's not just about lights on, it's about where's the light coming from? What's the unit? And yeah, maybe a fluorescent tube a meter above your head <laughs> doesn't make anybody look particularly good. Uh, <laughs> we learned uh, slightly better with a blue gel on it, though, uh, which was interesting. Um, yeah. And then it kind of leapt in a way into a different into a different world. So in 2016, you um, really plowed in there because uh, what did we have in 2016? Of course, we had uh, Chalk Circle. We had uh, the Back High. Um, uh, and, and then, of course, we got the Beggar's Opera, um, so, so loads of work. But 2016 was interesting in that um, Chalk Circle. And I certainly remember having a conversation with you about um, doing Brecht. And I'm pretty sure it was your good self. And, oh, no, it's all placards and shouting. Oh, no, it's all grey. Oh, yeah, grey no. gray was my go-to response. Like, oh, it's just going to be grey, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And... Um, and we didn't. We sort of tipped that on its head, didn't we, really? With I think we went completely the polar opposite for the first time. Certainly us together, I think, started really exploring colour and defining space through something as simple as colour, rather than trying to create uh, a real space. Just to, this is a transition to another space, and so that can be done as simply as just a wash of colour. Also, of course, it was in the round, which was really exciting because that's something we hadn't done together. And it's always a, always a challenge for a lighting designer. But I thought in the jack, especially because it's once you put all those seats in, the playing space is quite small. But that means as an audience member, you are literally on top of what's happening. And I think it was just really successful for Chalk. Really 
a complete change in gear of the way that we worked as a company and me and you, I think specifically. Yeah. And, and talking about earlier, uh, it, you know, you don't have that much space to play with. I certainly remember lamps being over rigged over the top of bars, lamps under the rig. <laughs> it was like you looked up and it looked like NASA, you know, it was like yeah, the was rig a lot was going on. A bit, the rig was crazy. And we and remember Neil, uh, sound designer, had, had put almost, I think I used to call it the chandelier of sound. There's these yeah. four speakers in the middle facing outwards. And, you know, and it was so, um, I don't know, for me, I, I think it's because it was the first time I was sort of conscious that what we did was Brechtian. So, yeah. you know, looking at Brett going, well, yeah, we all, we have our st actors on stage all the time or we get changed on stage or, you know, we, we do all of that. What's so radical about this? And of course, that was in complete ignorance, really. And it was when you actually sort of realised what that was in um, context to and, and, and in antithesis to, we go, yes. And it, there is something wonderfully empowering when you go, we do this and it is a thing. It's not just a thing we do. It is actually a thing, um, which was really I remember remarkable. talking of famous conversations in the Nash. <laughs> uh, before, when we first, when you first told me about Chalk Circle, invited me to come on board. This is a long time before production meetings or anything. Just having a really long, with a few beers, conversation about what Brecht is, because I'd come at it with this idea of, oh, I don't want it to be grey. I don't want people walking around with signs saying "free to poor" or whatever. And walking through, I think I'd studied him obviously when I studied, but never really thought of how that applied to my practice. And I think that's the same. It was kind of a real eye-opening moment of the way that I had been working it actually lent itself super clearly to the way that Brecht was talking about. Yeah. And I, I don't know about you, but I got a huge confidence from that because you went, I suppose that's what I meant earlier by, yes, it is a thing. It isn't just mm. um, something I've made up and I like the look of. Um, there is something a bit more meaningful about this. Also, I think really interesting to, because I don't, I'd only ever thought of Brecht as people walking around with signs and grey. <laughs> and to actually realise that it's, the theory isn't the product that maybe you're expecting it to be. The ideas behind it are really not restrictive at all. In fact, they're basically the opposite. It's almost the least restrictive way of creating theatre as you can imagine, because you can do whatever you want, essentially. Because the idea is to remind people that they're watching a show. Mm. And I found such an honesty in that. You don't have to pretend, you can just do. And you can pretend if you want, as long as you're honest about pretending. Yeah. So we all, we all know they're actors. We all know that, that this, these things don't magically happen. Um, but uh, I, I think it's also celebrating the technology in theatre, um, embracing that, embracing the actor. The actor is an actor. And that might sound really peculiar, but uh, but there's always that sort of, I don't know whether this is actor training as well. There's always something about it all being truthful and real and naturalistic. And actually part of that was an explosion for me to go, it doesn't have to be naturalistic at all. And of course, it, it, you know, naturalistic uh, heightened work doesn't have to be not truthful. It could still be truthful, but it's truthful in the way that the actor can play it, but also it's truthful. It's an actor with a tin of biscuits. You know, it's, yeah, it doesn't have to be earth shatteringly, shatteringly profound. It's, it's actors telling you a story. And of course, Chalk was great for that, wasn't it? Here's a bunch of actors who are in this dilemma, this predicament, having to resolve what to do um, about this bit of land. Then they put on a play to tell about it, you know, to sort it out or to kind of work it out, which was- I think honesty is the word that was used probably the most throughout that process was mm. just be honest.
it doesn't matter what you do just be honest and i think that's really yeah really struck home in the in the whole process of that because that felt like quite a big step as a company that we made together mm. honesty it's an interesting word because you'd imagine naturalism to be honesty but it's actually the opposite right oh it's complete and utter bs <laughs> absolutely no room for that stuff thanks yeah no it's it, it, you know it's it's ridiculous so so absolutely and i and and actually just i don't know whether this is true or not this just come to my head um maybe that's been part of the not a successful work so you know thinking about other things where we've not quite worked out what it is you go well we don't quite know what it is maybe because we're trying oh well, i don't know maybe i'm trying to make it something it's not or not quite sure or try something different for the sake of difference and actually maybe it's it, it really is is understanding the perimeters of that honesty so of course with chalk we said it's set in this sort of community center or this idea that the jack has been kind of taken over to sort out this dilemma and and jack's theater is a community space that um is the biggest community space and of course that helped that really worked the jack because that room had been used in the past for local gatherings and meetings and that sort of thing so there is a sense of community and of course here's a community you know so it just felt totally natural didn't it and and, and i don't know about you Stu, it felt to me it was a very much a process of everybody piling in with stuff you know well, literally sometimes social the designer would just come in with stuff and she got i bought you some stuff and you go i don't want any more stuff the room's full of stuff <laughs> but what was brilliant about that is then no one was precious about what was discarded we all just went it's a community center get some boxes put a bait what are we going to do and brilliantly it felt like the play started to reveal itself to us well how are we going to do the baby well if it's a, in the community center it could be one of them dolls that you practice um that cpr stuff with yeah great and if so it sort of started penny started dropping and i think i don't know this this might be going off on a tangent now i think that's partly then shows that have been equally successful going forward is when you just acknowledge it's a play just set up the parameters of what that means and then let the play respond to that whereas you know the one that i'm always a bit ugh about is the tempest which and that's not to do anyone down it's just actually it felt quite confusing and where does it and we should have just set it in a theater we should have just gone, you know, and I think it was first preview. I turned to, I think it was yourself, Sam, who was a sound designer and, and Sara, who at the time was our associate director. And I think I just turned and went, oh, I've got it. <laughs> I was like, well, I finally got it. This is mid first preview. Let's just set it in a theater. Cause that's where we are. Instead yeah. of trying to do a bit of climate change, try and do a bit of magic. Who is Ariel? Well, you know there's 101 different ways there's probably more than 100 different ones one ways of doing aerial and so it never quite landed because we never quite knew where it was whereas if we'd have set that in asda or if we'd have set that in a car park or if, if we'd have been very clear about where it was it is a theater maybe that's when the play would have revealed itself and we'd all gone yes i get it you know and that's it i think that's crucial to our process is that the creative team do have to understand it and it's not just dressing it's not just bits of stuff it's it's um, the whole process, I think, being playful with that and creating together. Yeah, well, it's collaboration, right? I mean, that's mm. how you get success as a company is everyone pulling in the same direction. It doesn't take much for that to become a bit obscure. And I think once you've obscured something for yourselves as an audience member, it's going to be 10 times worse. Interestingly about The Tempest, I think the play itself is talking about how the play reveals itself with Chalk Circle. The Tempest is almost the polar opposite right because throughout the script it's like we're here and then 
four lines later, you can be somewhere else, or the moods change drastically, or someone enters and it's a completely different space because the, the island itself is ever changing. So I think that's it's a trickier play to try and manipulate in that way. Whereas, like you say, if maybe if we had just read it and said, "Oh, this is it. We're here now. We're here now. We're here now." Just listen to what we're being told. Mm. Maybe that could have revealed itself earlier. But yeah. hindsight, huh? <laughs> yeah, and that's certainly not to do and down do anyone's work. You know, it's it's um there's some wonderful, wonderful bits about it, but but there are moments I do certainly remember that being a, a tempestuous, see what I did there, uh process in that kind of not really knowing what it is. And with only three weeks rehearsal, you sort of do have to have a very good hunch to drive toward because you don't have much time to find out by osmosis you sort of do have to in that regard but but yeah but sure but also in 2016 god there's so much isn't there also 2016, we did the back eye so greek stuff greek drama um and i was really intrigued to find out what's what is there a difference because there might not be it, what's the difference if there is a difference of lighting early modern text so you know the, the old shakespeare and stuff and then doing something like greek drama which was a uh, a project that that Gavin created that was devised but with relatively contemporary but poetic language and then Brecht which is pretty much modern day English is that is there much difference I think specifically to that project it was super interesting right because uh obviously uh, Greek work normally you're thinking chorus line and then specific moments acted out but the chorus are integral to bringing the story along but inside of the show that we made was individual soliloquies as well from people. So it felt very, I remember for a long time, we struggled with where it, where it was, what it was. And we ended up building these huge, can you remember these huge goalposts essentially, rugby stands with lights all along them? Yes. Uh, to try and create the idea of arena or something like that. And the idea of, again, I think it's interesting that we've, go back to chalk circle and the idea of it being community is that the idea was that these people were telling a story directly to us which has become obviously much it's, i mean it's a classic breaking technique but i guess it must be a greek technique as well because that's what the chorus always do they just tell us directly what's happening my main memory of the back eye is the reveal of the head though obviously <laughs> <laughs> wow what a moment at least sonia yeah well, you can't leave it there you've shot. got you've <laughs> got to describe that you can't leave that there yes oh, God. so just this tiny little sonia uh disappeared off stage in the middle of there was a whole movement sequence right disappeared out the back uh hidden by not being lit and then uh the people in the middle separated to reveal sonia standing covered in blood holding the head which was it's just gruesome she didn't just really? hold the head, she ran towards the audience yeah. with the head. Yeah, but the big reveal was upstage, right? Yeah. So they'd separate and reveal upstage and she ran downstage. Wow. Gross. It was the, <laughs> it was the smell for me. We've, we really have moved on in our blood mixtures, but back in the day, that soya sauce was, oh, I, do you know what? If I still get a whiff of it now, it just takes you back to that and you go, oh. You know, which actually is great sensorily wise, because that's what, you know, in a way, that's what needed to happen, right? People's guts start churning, you know, oh God, what is this? You know, um, and interesting you talk about that, that hidden, but I think that's part of the excitement of the possibilities. If you're in a big room, 
you know, you're in a space that the actors do not leave. There's a, a wonderful, exciting element of when then things like that appear, you go, where the hell's that come from? Whereas if you're in a theatre that think pieces of scenery are flying in and out all the time, we go, oh, well, it's probably just behind a piece of scenery or something. But the fact that it was in a, bo a nondescript box, I mean, I'm, I'm ruining the magic here now, folks. <laughs> but the fact that it was in a box preset and there was a preset costume with blood and, you know, it's the old trick. But um, she was still in the room. She was doing this while the story was basically downstage of a couple of metres. Um, it was similar in a way to we did a Q&A on The Tempest and one of an audience member said, I just loved how the harpy came out of nowhere because it came out of effectively the harpy came out of a bin, <laughs> you know, a bin upstate. So when you actually I, I, I'm pretty confident about this now, actually, but when you show and reveal to the audience your tools and your tricks, they see the props tables, they see what you're playing with. It's an empty stage. Then there's something about their suspension of disbelief can go far greater um, it can it can really expand, I think. So then when incredible things do appear, they have way more impact because we don't see a harpy every five minutes. You get one. <laughs> and it's, you know, and, and I remember that with Sonia because that was the only real bit of blood and it was gory, but it was, where did that come from? Whereas if that was a show with lots of columns and sand and sandals and stuff, you know, happening all the time, scenery stuff, it would just be another part of the, the thing. But it actually, it, I don't know, maybe by stripping everything back, you give focus to that one item or that one event, maybe, um, which I think is potentially exciting. Um, certainly has the impact anyway, doesn't it? Um, and of course, then later at that year, uh, we worked at the Beggars Opera. So that was a sort of upping the songs turning into a musical drama musical play and of course then um was it the follow it must have been the following year mustn't it 2017 when you did taming of the shrew um at, at the jack again uh, our glastonbury version of that but because uh, time's against us annoyingly i'm just going to skip um to dream in the tempest really because they also felt i don't know to me anyway they felt like another bit, bit of a milestone because we were at the Greenwich. And of course we dabbled at the Greenwich before because of the chalk transferring for a, a week or so. Um, but here we were making work for that space. And you referred to it earlier. It's just a bigger box, right? <laughs> and I wonder whether you could share your thoughts about the pros and cons of the bigger box. Yeah, I think what's, uh, if we go back just really quickly to the transfer of chalk, was the revealing of so if you go into the Greenwich normally it's all masked off with soft drapes to look like uh, a traditional end on space with you know you'd think it was a box but if you strip all that back there's a really strange diagonal wall that cuts across the stage which creates an entirely different shape and I think it was, it's the honesty again right it's like this is where we are this is the building we're working in uh, was really it's just key it's key to the way that we work as a company anyway i seem to think so when we get to dream what was wonderful about dream i think was uh the little light puppets just adding in something completely new that we hadn't done before which sounds like it's lighting design but it really wasn't it was someone else's job but really interesting way of working because i never would have thought of it myself really beautiful and again, production shots of that really capture the moment of there's, you know, seven, eight people holding a, essentially a tiny little lamp, but you can't see them. 
but you know they're there. And that's what's really interesting, I think, about this honesty idea is that we know that they're being held by actors, but actually you have the ability to just accept that that's not what's happening. Yeah, I, I, I think that's, that's this, God, this is good, isn't it? Because it, it reminds, because that's something else we, I, I really, acknowledge really is we we do all of this in the pressure of a rehearsal process and then a very normally fairly pressurized production week you know you're racing you're losing time going through your fingers and we don't very often get chance to debrief and we talk about it and we go oh we must debrief let's all meet up and go for it and then things happen and people go oh, i'm on another show or you know i've had enough of you or because <laughs> <laughs> we've already spent a long time with each other but you sort of, I don't know, maybe weeks, maybe sometimes months afterwards, maybe years, you kind of go, oh, yeah, that's what that was. That's what makes that work. And and I, I um, and we did this within our production with Macbeth in 2020. Just get rid of everything. Get rid of everything. The pros arch can come out. Everything. And of course, it throws up problems. How are you going to get the ghost of Banquo on then if you've got nowhere to hide behind? Of course, it brings up issues there. But you... But I think there's something again wonderful about that suspension of disbelief. Here are the tools. There are actors. There are props. That's a play. We're going to be very honest about that. Then we what we have normally what I call the Pandora's box moment, the bit where we push the big red button and it all starts, and on comes the haze, and then you know all of that. So we know now this is the storytelling theatery bit. But we've not hidden anything. Everything's here. Everything's in front of you. You might just not see it all the time. And then when we do bring it out the pops, you know it's there. Our production Lord of Flies, there was a there's a pig head on stage as you walk in. So then you know there's a pig head. But but when the pig head was actually using the play, people would sort of jump. But you already knew it's there. So it's 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 a really interesting way of laying out your tools, your props, and everything beforehand. And um, and then of course with with Dream, we sort of then went right. We could can totally open this space out, and we started to to play with the architecture of the building, didn't we? So we had that hex. Well, did it end up being a hexagon, a pentagon, an octagon? I can't remember how many sides that bloody <laughs> thing had. <laughs> it had lots of different sides at one point. But that um, central playing space and starting to. One thing I was really excited about, certainly with the residency, was being able to create work for somewhere you call home so that you can test the boundaries of that. Um, I wonder if that makes a difference to you as a lighting designer about that site responsive stuff and whether that makes much of a difference or not. I think once we, well, once you'd established yourself as having a home there, the way you started using the building was really interesting. When I think of the Tempest, taking out part of the stage, revealing the, uh, the pit underneath and using that as an entrance and an exit was super exciting lighting from underneath the stage all of that stuff was i don't you feel like you can't do that in someone else if you're not a resident there in some way because it's a big ask for the in-house team to help you out and do that it's a big ask to put it back as well afterwards which is the thing that most people don't forget is once these are over you have to return <laughs> it back to how it should be yeah <laughs> normally at midnight <laughs> yeah right exactly after the pubs have shut unfortunately <laughs> uh, i think as a lighting designer it's just once you manage to get your hands on a place i think the first show you do in any space you learn so much about what you can do and what you can't do like what's possible and what isn't possible and obviously you're constantly trying to push those boundaries to try and create something new and exciting in that space. I think of the Jack, some of the, the different shows we've done at the Jack, uh, I mean, I don't know how many we did, six, seven together there. And they all feel completely different to me. None of them feel the same, which is quite incredible really, because we don't bring in a whole load of gear every time. We use what's there, we just use it differently. Uh, and obviously, I mean, the bigger space you get, the more 
opportunity you have to mess around with it, which has been really fun because we've just done, again, I think the shows that I've worked on there all seem completely different. Apart from festoons, always. <laughs> always a festoon, which is just really the festoons waiting for the angle poise lamps to take over. <laughs> I think that's what's happening there. A string and, of angle poise lamps. And a massive shout out, actually. You're totally, totally right to raise that, I think. Massive shout out to technical managers at the Greenwich, uh, Adrian, Nathan, and now Kaz, because it is a lot to ask. And, and you know, and, and, and in, a, in a contract, I hate that when people go, oh, well, let's just look at your contract. And you go, oh, we're humans. Can't we have a conversation? But, you know, they've, they've been massively supportive in that, seeing the building, you know, and I'm sure in their heads at times, they go, oh, my God, go away. <laughs> like, stop, stop with these ideas, will you? But I remember even, you know, even with Header, when we were doing, what were we, I, I think it was, maybe it was when we were doing Salome the year before, and I'd had an idea about Header about chipboard flooring. <laughs> and so I, I got a bee in my bonnet with a set model and I ran down to the tech box a tech office and Kaz was like oh god he's back again here he is and and but it's so interesting going in there was it Kaz or maybe it was Nathan there's just something about going into the space and talking about this chipboard and people not saying no people saying yeah we'll just have to factor in some uh glossing time because obviously chipboard's going to come off on people's feet and we don't want that so and, and it was just blumming brilliant because you went there's a group of people here who want this to be brilliant there's not people you know hang, hanging on dragging their heels no negheads because you can't create fear with negheads well you can but it's not very exciting and actually, you know, sometimes you take that for granted. And I, I don't actually, because those three individuals were, were just fantastic at, at opening, literally sometimes opening the doors. You know, the whole, whole idea of taking the orchestra pit out. Yeah, I mean, we would have been in other theatres. I said, no, of course not. And I do know of other companies who saw The Tempest who asked for, to take that and they did say no. So there is something about a residency that goes, yeah, we, you know, we're going to do this and we, we are going to take care of it and we are going to put it back. And, but they love that ambition. And seeing your work as a lighting designer go, I get it now. I know why we took that floor out. Because look at that. That's exciting. Audience members walking in going, oh, my God, there's a massive hole in the floor. You know, that's, that's, that's when you start getting that um, theatre buzz. You know, you start getting that energy. Um, and then, of course, we, we'll jump to Header, which intrigue. And I've spoken to a couple of the actors who were um, due to be in Header Garblin. And, and they talk a bit about because it didn't happen, because we, we ended, didn't we, on the first day of the last week of rehearsal. That was March 16th last year. There's a strange feeling because they never got their final rehearsal room run through. They never got their first preview or opening night or indeed closing night, which I think actually maybe we don't acknowledge, but that is miles, that is, you know, that's part of the process. They're milestones in a actor's creative's journey. And I wonder whether you've reflected on Header or how have you, I mean, you might not have got all put out in the box, but you know, what's, what's that like when you've done a show that then doesn't happen? So uh, the day that we got told not to go to the theatre, but that theatres weren't shut, I was actually programming at the Boulevard for the effect which was going to happen. Uh, so I had two shows essentially that both got cancelled. Uh, just crazy. Uh, and I guess both of them, I've just put in a box and been like, maybe we'll come back to them later, maybe we won't. It's a real shame because you'd put work in the back end, obviously, but as a lighting designer, most of my work comes in production week. There's a lot of thought that goes in, but actually in terms of hours, most of it comes in production week onwards. 
and Heather, I think we were still not quite at the point where concrete work could be done on my end yet. So we were still very much at what is this? Where are we? What's it going to look like? And it was loads of images floating around again, but we weren't really set on something. So I didn't feel like I'd missed a huge amount on Heather. Whereas I think if you'd been in the rehearsal room, that must have been quite it's just disappointing, I guess, isn't it? Is it I, I would imagine would be the main feeling because you put work in and you want to see a result from the end of it. Yeah, you, you almost need the catharsis of doing it mm. to see if it works or not. Or, you know, again, those milestones are, are important parts of a process. Um, it's interesting talking to an actor recently who we've worked with a lot who said when they work with other companies, they, they don't have a work in progress. And that feels really odd now that after years of working with us and having a work in progress, we're basically halfway through the last week of rehearsal, we'll do a, a run through of whatever's there. And it's a work in progress because we acknowledge it's not finished, but uh, we just want to show something to see where we were at and works with other companies. And they don't have that. It's kind of, oh, it's a, it's a milestone that's missed. I've really missed not having it. And you say, well, it's just a run through really, isn't it? And they act saying, no, it's way more than that. It's about us as a company going right well this is it do or die we've got to put this together we might have only staged the ending this morning sometimes too as you well might staged remember, the ending yet, we mate. haven't even finished <laughs> <laughs> yeah blimey that's not happening till tech but yeah there's um something really interesting about that um those milestones those moments and you know feeling a bit odd that that didn't happen but um yeah ibsen we could do a whole podcast on ibsen meets brecht and um, I don't know, I sort of feel that they don't. So <laughs> like they're sort of polar ends and that was that was a hard one to wrangle really. But I'm pretty sure there's, I'm pretty convinced there could be a Brechtian version of an Ibsen. You've just got to butcher the bugger, you know? <laughs> there needs a serious adaptation change, you know, it, the same story, but in the, anyway, won't bore people about that because we're not doing it. But there, there we are on um, header. Great. So what's the future holds? <laughs> I always feel like get your mystic Meg tea leaves out. So what's next? What's what's your plans? What's your hopes? What's your dreams for the future? Where, what, what's, you know, now we've done the reminiscing bit. What, what should we do next? What are you going to do next? What's where? How are you feeling about the future? That's a lot, isn't it? Off you go. <laughs> I feel if we go back to the conversation we're having the other day on the phone, uh, I've been really struggling with the idea of online theatre and I'm not sure it works particularly well. Uh, I've struggled because I don't feel like it gives a sense of being part of something. I feel very detached from it, which I feel is not the reason that I want to go and watch theatre really. I want to see it and enjoy it and experience it as part of a group of people rather than a kind of solitary experience. It's more of a collective rather than by myself. So I really just want to get back to that. I miss it quite a lot, as I'm sure you two do as well. Yeah, it. it um, I don't, trying to sort of look for, for positives from this whole thing. You know, um, you, you 
obviously know, and I'm not sure the listeners do, but I'll just say anyway, you know, before Macbeth, I was already sort of tinkering on the verge of kind of let's just throw this towel in because where are we going with this? What are we doing with this? This isn't, this isn't easy. Uh, in fact, sometimes it's damn impossible. Um, and was already sort of going, this is probably it actually, let's just wrap this up and maybe have one last hurrah for this year and then go. And then I think it was, and I remember talking to, I think it was my mum actually, um, having a conversation when it's then taken away from you, you realize how important it is and however difficult it is, you do realize how important it is. And, and actually it's not um, a job. It's a lifestyle. It's a way of living. It's a, you know, there's something about, you know, your friends are the people you've created something with, you've collaborated with, and, and that's, that's important. So actually the positives that have come out of it is you do readdress your, you know, your core values, your, priorities and you're you know and hopefully coming out of this there's something about um work that's created in the future that you can go back to and go this is why it's important and you know just going back to the head of garble thing you know why are we trying to make an ibsen why am i trying to make an ibsen into a brecht and you sort of go well maybe you just don't do ibsen then or maybe you go do you know what with the right people that's the challenge let's see if it works or not and so it's it's about your attitude, I guess, and it's about your collaborators. Who are you working with? And that's more important than than anything else, I certainly think. So it's being back in a space with people who share the energy and the passion um, for the challenge. Yeah, I mean, I think as a company, it's always been. I think whenever you're making theatre, nothing comes easy. Everyone always thinks, oh, it's what a lovely job. You can just go there and mess around with your friends and have a lovely time, play some games, throw a ball around, say some lines, turn some lights on. But actually, if you're trying to create high quality work, there's a lot of challenges and a lot of time and a lot of tears that go into making that. It's not an easy thing to do. So when you surround yourself with other people that are just as determined to try and create something, it's a really... You, you end up creating really tight friendships with those people because you go through a lot of hard work, a lot of emotions, you're on a journey with them. It sounds super cliche, but you do. Uh, and I think that's probably what I've learned the most over the last year of not being able to do that is that you just miss that collective sense of trying to push something to be the best it can be. Because I, I mean, I haven't really had that for the last year. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And it, it, it reminded me of, um, I've never really been one for meditation or yoga or, you know, sort of my own well-being type stuff. But the English Touring Theatre have, have been absolutely wonderfully supportive of not just to us as a company, but other companies on their Forge project. And they did a, a, a well-being session, which I attended. And I thought, oh, blimey, this is going to be all sort of incense which of course i only use for set models uh, but, uh, to create haze effects but that you know i thought it would all be a bit come by r and actually um it was wonderful and i realized actually i uh, there was an exercise we we're doing and i was writing and i looked up at the screen and the other people on the call were very emotional some people crying and i thought yeah we've we don't we've not really dealt with what this weird period of grief has been we've lost something but we don't quite know what it is that we've lost but do you know what's really i think that's useful, but what's probably more useful is to acknowledge that and then go, okay, how do we then focus on those positives for the work that we start to build when we come back? And so actually, in a way, it feels to me that our 2022 season will be 
the Lazarus greatest hits, you know, <laughs> in terms of bringing those creatives back into the fold, you go, let's come on, let's get back together on this and, and be, and, and appreciate those because of the person a bit more, you know, that's the relationship. That's, that's the collaboration and angle poise lamps. We've got to get an <laughs> angle poise lamp in there after all these years. Um, and, and so we might have something up our sleeves, might we? We're talking about doing um, maybe a, a, a piece that has digital tech in and stuff. We can't really talk more about that because nothing's signed yet. So it's all speculation. But um, yeah, I think uh, I think it's definitely one for Angle Poise Lamps. So it's about getting back in the room, isn't it? It's about collaborating. It's about, and maybe, I don't know, this sounds a bit daft, but I've, I've spoken to another uh, designer, the lovely Saucy Walshy, Saucy, um, about let's just start throwing images back and forth. Let's just get some foam board out. Let's, you know, and in a way it's difficult because as you say, it's speculative. It's not, you know, we need the task in front of us to do it. And, and actually let's use this time to sort of recheck in. Um, so she's sending me pictures of all sorts. I can't tell you, <laughs> you know? but it's great because you go, yes, we're fueling each other. And that's what it's about. We do have to fuel each other. Um, it's, it is that a collaboration. Uh, talking about collaboration, Gavin, uh, over to you for the 60 second challenge. Yes. Stand by listeners. Yes. Okay, Stu. Um, so if you haven't heard this before, the rules are simple. Uh, there are some quick fire questions. Um, I'm going to ask you them as quick as I can, and you answer them as quick or as slow as you want. But we want to get as many through in the 60 seconds as possible. I'm quite competitive, so I'm going to. Uh, really I, I, I highly, I do not doubt that. I do not doubt that. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna clock here that you can see just to just to add to the drama of it all. <laughs> <laughs> you can pass, uh, but it won't add to your final score. Uh, we're we're going to add your score up at the end uh, and then we'll add you to the leaderboard. At the moment uh, of time of recording, the uh, leader is on 13. Wow. So Bobby Mock last week, uh, he got 13 in 60 seconds. Lucky so, for uh, some. Lucky yeah, for indeed. some. Yes. Uh, so that's, that's what you've got to beat. Um, Ricky is going to, as he always does, be ready on the air horn. The lovely ear horn here, heard here. Thank you very much. Uh, so when you hear that, that means that time is up and you're not able to answer any more questions. So Stu, are you ready? You bet. Ricky, are you ready? <laughs> 60 seconds on the clock, here we go. Stu, tea or coffee? Tea. Dog or cats? Dog. If you could change your name, what would it be? Oh, John. <laughs> what are you currently reading? Animal Farm. If you were instantly becoming an expert in something, what would it be? Particle physics. What's your favourite word? Voluptuous. If you had to eat one thing for every meal going forward, what would it be? Lasagna. Sweet or savoury? Savory. If you didn't have to sleep, what would you do with your extra time? Read. Uh, horror or romance? Horror. What's your party trick? Buzz. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, that's time. That is time. Okay. Oh, no, we'll never know what the party piece is. <laughs> uh, Stu, how many 
how many do you think you got correct? Oh, nine. Not correct. How many do you think you answered? Nine. <laughs> okay, I answered nine. <laughs> I don't know how many I got right. Well, I can tell you that you got ten correct. Oh, well, you, you answered ten. So uh, unfortunately, you did not. You did not beat Bobby. But it does mean that you're in. You're tied for second place with three other people. Um, <laughs> <laughs> with everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations. Now that's what I call ensemble collaboration. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> you see, it's the same score as your air horn work was wonderful, by the way. Well, I've I've had extensive practice. Um, <laughs> one would say, uh, reading to that as as you like. Uh, I did think about your party piece. I thought of bringing up the um, the story of our famous final closing night of Henry V, and we uh, anyway we won't go into that on air. But um, it was an intriguing evening, said the Times. Um, massive and morning, and and morning, mid morning, and uh, afternoon probably. <laughs> Uh, yes, massive, massive thanks to our guest today, our old mucker mate, Stuart Glover. Thanks, Stu. And thank you for tuning in. We will be back next week with another Spotlight On podcast. Until then, find out how you can get creative and get involved with our year of exploration by checking out our Facebook page, our Twitter profile, at Lazarus Theatre. There's bits and bobs on our Instagram, also at Lazarus Theatre. And all the details can be found on our website, www.lazarustheatre.com. I've been Ricky Dukes. And I've been Gavin... And I've been Gavin... <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know my name. And I've been I Gavin harrington Odedro. Until next time, stay safe and stay well. Lazarus Theatre Company is a not-for-profit organisation that relies on the generous support of our friends, angels and principal supporters. If you wish to support this podcast or any of the work Lazarus Theatre Company is doing, you can visit the Lazarus Supporters page on our website, lazarustheatre.com forward slash Lazarus hyphen supporters, or you can send any amount to paypal.me forward slash Lazarus Theatre. Every bit counts. You have been listening to the Spotlight On podcast hosted by Ricky Dukes and Gavin Harrington Odedra, produced by Lazarus Theatre Company. The music you've been listening to is composed by Bobby Locke and is from our 2016-2017 production of the Caucasian Chalk Circle by Bertolt Brecht.